Hi, I'm Jen White. This is Reset. Today on the show, the deadline to sign up for health care through the Affordable Care Act has been extended until tomorrow morning. And Dan Weissman, host of the podcast An Arm and a Leg, brings us the details and breaks down why accessing health insurance in this country is so costly and confusing. This is not a system. You know, it's just a bunch of pieces that interact with each other. And everybody's everybody that you might interact with in it, your doctor, the people your doctor works with and for, the insurance company, everybody is just trying to get their own angle on it. That's our, I mean, that's capitalism. But first, tomorrow morning, for just the third time in American history, the House of Representatives will debate and vote on whether to impeach a sitting president. Back in 1868, it was Andrew Johnson. He was impeached in the House and narrowly avoided being removed from office by the Senate. 130 years later, in 1998, it was Bill Clinton. Richard Nixon was never impeached. He resigned before the House got the chance for a floor vote. Now it's President Donald Trump. If the House votes to impeach him this week, as expected, there will likely be a trial in the Senate next month to determine whether he's removed from office. I sat down with Huffington Post congressional reporter Arthur Delaney, and he started out with a breakdown of just what to expect tomorrow in the House. There will definitely be Republicans and Democrats disagreeing strongly about the president's high crimes and misdemeanors. Well, last week, the House Judiciary Committee debated for 14 hours, adjourned, and finally voted to move impeachment to the full House. It was a party line vote, 23 Democrats to 17 Republicans. Do you think we're likely to see that same you know, lengthy, divisive display on the House floor tomorrow? Absolutely. And I think it's likely that it'll be another party line vote, though that is not totally certain at this point. One Democrat has actually switched parties and will uh, vote against impeachment as a Republican. And there's no reason to expect a more dignified or calmer debate on the House floor than we've seen so far. Well, Democrats control 233 seats in the House. How many votes do they need to impeach the president? They need a simple majority, so I believe that that is uh, 218 votes. You mentioned one Democratic defection. Do we see any movement in the other direction? Well, the first defection we saw was actually Republican uh, Justin Amash of Michigan, who uh, back in May announced that he would support an impeachment inquiry against the president. Uh, but as a result of that, he he eventually left the Republican Party. So there's been uh, one defection on each side. Who are some of the key players you'll be listening to and watching for tomorrow? Well, we'll be looking at uh, House Judiciary Chair uh, Gerald Nadler and House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff, who probably played the biggest role in conducting the investigation that became the basis of the Judiciary Committee's Articles of impeachment. The, that committee is is the one that wrote the articles, which are actually pretty short. And uh, anyone who's curious about them should not be intimidated. Go to the Judiciary Committee's website, and you can read them in a couple minutes. Well, let's say the House doesn't vote to impeach the president; that enough Democrats defect. What happens then? That would be like earthquake level shocking. I think it's it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that they will vote to impeach. They're confident that uh, they're not going to lose that man. And a lot of the moderate freshman members who represent Trump districts have already come out and said that they're going to vote to impeach. So it's it's it would be extremely shocking if that didn't happen. Um, another potential surprise would be if a handful of Republicans 
vote to impeach, but we're not really expecting that either. So, Arthur, as we've mentioned, the House is led by Democrats. We do expect the president to be impeached this week, possibly tomorrow, or if the debate goes on longer, then possibly Thursday. As a congressional reporter, did you ever expect to be covering impeachment proceedings? No. Like you've said, they're pretty rare. Um, But from the minute Donald Trump uh, was the GOP non- nominee and became the president just from the pattern of how he's run his businesses, the way he talks, his sort of cavalier attitude toward uh, the American government and and the Constitution. You, you kind of wondered if this would happen to him. It never came close to happening with Barack Obama, though they did uh, try to impeach his IRS commissioner. So it's it's always something that's like waiting in the wings if you're a congressional reporter. So what happens next? If the president is impeached in the House, are we certain there will be a trial in the Senate? We're pretty certain about that. Mercifully, it looks like Republicans and Democrats in the Senate agree that they should go on a Christmas break so they won't take it up like the next day. Instead, this will happen in January. But the parameters of the Senate trial are really up in the air. Uh, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and, and uh, the Minority Leader Chuck Schumer are not on the same page yet and have actually put out sort of testy dueling statements. Um, Schumer said, you know, we should have witnesses. We should have the White House chief of staff. Uh, A lot of Republicans have said we should have Hunter Biden in here. And it it seems like it's bluffing on both sides. Um, But what we do know is that the uh, managers from the House will come present their case and then presumably the president's lawyers will present theirs. Though the, who exactly those people will be is, uh, is something that a lot of people are speculating about. And, of course, that Senate trial would be overseen by the chief justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts. Talk about the role he would play. Um, I, I think that a lot of how this turns out would actually be uh, coordinated by agreements between uh McConnell and Schumer. Um, and if they can't hash that out, this could come down to uh, a, a series of votes. And I, I'm not actually that expert in what the chief justice's role would be. Now, we've heard varying accounts on how long a trial in the Senate could take. Is that also part of that negotiation or would that be up to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell? Well, that's definitely something that they're negotiating. That's a key thing for both sides. There are vulnerable Republicans who might not like for a trial to go on for a long time. They don't want to seem like they're doing it too quickly and and have people perceive it as unfair. Right now, polls have suggested that most people actually think the Senate trial will be fair. So if it doesn't if it, if it's too short uh that you know they could undermine themselves that way. There's also the the question of uh all the democratic senators who are running for president if the trial goes on for a long time, is it to their advantage to be stuck in Washington like 6 days a week? So it's it's all up in the air right now. Now, the Senate is a Republican body, um, Republican majority body, we should say. The chances of two-thirds of the Senate voting to remove the president, it seems pretty slim. And we've gotten some early indications from uh, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell about how he plans to approach the trial. Just explain what we've been hearing there. Well, Mitch McConnell has said he's coordinating with the president's lawyers and that there's no chance that the Senate will convict the president and remove him from office. And that is the conventional wisdom. Uh, and people have always presumed that this faces long odds in the Senate, and, and House Democrats have known that. But, you know, there is a little suspense. There are a number of retiring senior Republican senators who've been sort of tight lipped. And a lot of senators have said, oh, you know, well, I'm a potential juror. I don't want to say too much about this. So while it does seem 
really unlikely that the Senate will convict the president. It's not impossible. Well, a lot, as you mentioned, has been made of the fact that the poll numbers on impeachment, they haven't really moved much much in over a month. The country is still divided, but slightly more Americans favor impeachment. In your coverage of Congress, are you getting the sense that that's part of the consideration at play? It's definitely in the back of everybody's mind, but the way the polls haven't moved, it, it, you know, that, it hasn't been the most dynamic story. Um, it's, and there's a lot of just poll-based trash talk, like Republicans say, oh, look at this poll. Impeachment's not looking too good for you. You know, you guys are going to lose, and Democrats can more calmly point to the fact that you got more people, and in, and in many polls, a majority, a slim majority of Americans backing impeachment. And that actually is, I think, more favorable uh, in terms of polling than Republicans had going into the impeachment of President Bill Clinton in the 90s. So it's it, it mainly, I think, reflects the, the polarization um, of the American public since then. Um, but it, you could also see it as favorable for Democrats. Well, now some critics of the process say this is just taking too much time. Uh, what is being put on the back burner? by all of these hearings and the vote and this potential trial in the Senate? I think it's difficult to make that counterfactual argument that they would be getting a whole lot done without this happening. Though people do say that a lot in the same way that they say, oh, well, Congress is broken and doesn't do a good job. Um, that's just something that people always say. There is stuff happening, and that maybe because Democrats, conscious of this, want to seem like they're getting stuff done. For instance, this big rewrite of the North American Free Trade Agreement is probably going to get a House vote this week. That's major. Um, the the Congress is finalizing uh, a government funding agreement that is not the kind of kick the can down the road continuing resolution you sometimes see. They're, they're doing an actual uh, omnibus spending bill. So stuff is happening. And it's I, I, I don't know how much more wonderfully productive they would be if they didn't have the major distraction of impeachment. So as you listen in on the full house debate on impeachment tomorrow, what will you be listening for? I am personally curious in uh, how far Republicans are going to go in in denying some of the uh, basic facts of what's happening. You know, for, for instance, will they say that the president did not ask Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden? That's something that a few of them have said, and it's not true. And will will Democrats try to uh, tease that that strange and false denial out of them, or or will they uh, have you know more plausible arguments like, well, this is just not you know they they've got hearsay and it's not it does not rise to the level of impeachment. Um, so I, I'm very interested in how the Republican defense of Trump will evolve. So far, it hasn't evolved that much. It's been very scattershot. And they haven't settled on a uh, you know a, a single series of defenses, and they have included these like really untrue statements that I, I don't think boost their credibility very much. Well, it's that time of the year again. Bells are ringing, and open enrollment for health insurance has come to a close. Well. Almost. The deadline to sign up for coverage under the Affordable Care Act for 2020 has been extended until early tomorrow morning, 2 a.m. Central Time to be exact. That's after users reported glitches on the healthcare.gov website in the waning hours of the enrollment period. 
One glaring question many of us ask ourselves each year is why is health insurance so expensive and so confusing? Chicagoan Dan Weissman tackles that question in his podcast, An Arm and a Leg, which focuses on the costs of health care. He's the show's host and the executive producer, and he joins me now. Hey, Dan. Hey, Jen. So what exactly were people experiencing with the ACA website? It was not responding. They weren't able to finish their applications. And people took to Twitter and took to other places and were like, hey, this is a thing. And I think there was some concern about, like, will this administration decide to help And the answer turned out to be, yeah. Yeah, okay. That's the thing. Well, the extension lasts for 36 hours. Mm -hmm. Do you think that'll be enough time as people are trying to navigate this thing? Uh, Well, that's – in some ways, that's two different questions, right? Mm -hmm. One of them is, uh, is that enough time for people to kind of get their – will the infrastructure hold up for all the traffic? And like, I don't know. I'm not a network engineer. I don't know. And the other is, is that enough time for people to kind of figure out their choices and – there's two answers to that, right? One of them is like, well, the deadline for that was Sunday. You should have figured that out before. Mm-hmm. And the other is like, oh, man, you could give people all year and it wouldn't be enough um, because it's legitimately hard and complicated. So will it be enough? Like it depends on which way you want to ask that question. When you talk to people about accessing health care and they describe maybe their experiences with, with open enrollment, how do they describe it? Well, the most memorable description was from an economist I talked to from Carnegie Mellon University who had done a study about people choosing health insurance. He had uh, he'd come across a data set with a colleague that had allowed them to analyze the choices people had made at a very large corporation that gave people a bunch of choices. And his colleague had said uh, – taking the long version of the story – his colleague had said – had looked at the table and had kind of a Rain Man moment. It was like, you know, what's interesting is that most of these choices are actually a bad bet for most people. Mm. He was able to do the math in his head really fast. And it was like, it would be interesting to see how people actually chose. And they were able to see that. And what they found was most people chose plans that were a bad bet. Um, and, you know, there's – and so they were like, why? And they they went and then did experiments in the wild. They had they gave people scenarios of like, choose your health insurance. And they found two things. And they one was they did this by – giving people a quiz, actually, most of us do not understand the terms um, that we're evaluating. What's a deductible? What's a copay? What's coinsurance? What's an out-of-pocket maximum? What's, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of these things, and they, all in, and they all interact. I mean, they're all kind of like variables you'd plug into a spreadsheet. And that is the other part of it is like most of us, we're not that, that great at doing the math of like, well, if I do this and I'm like this. And it's because the math and – and as it turned out, in order to get them – to get people to actually make a choice that wasn't actually a bad choice, they had to do all the math, explain all the terms, do all the math, and be like, so these are your choices. Uh-huh. If, if you choose this, you're likely to pay. It's likely going to cost you more. If you choose that one, it's going to cost you less. Which one do you want? And then people were able to make an informed choice. So that economist, when I talked to him, his son was about to turn 26 and need to buy his own health insurance for the first time. And that economist was like, I am dreading having to make this decision with my son. I And I'm not at all, I, I'm pretty convinced I'm not going to make the best choice. That's how hard it is. Wow. Well, let's talk about your podcast, An Arm and a Leg. Give us a sense of what you talk about. This. This, mm-hmm. <laughs> this we're, in a, we're in a completely broken system. And in fact, one of the first people I ever interviewed as I was preparing the show as an expert said, uh, this is not a system. You know, it's just a bunch of pieces that interact with each other. And everybody's, everybody, that you might interact with in it, your doctor, 
the people your, your doctor works with and for, the insurance company, everybody is just trying to get their own angle on it. That's our, I mean, that's capitalism. That's what we're doing. And uh, the results are, are, are hard. They're frustrating, right? I mean, I, I do not make a practice of memorizing and spewing out the numbers of like this many tens of millions of people uh, have a bad uh, thing on their credit report because of a medical bill. I think it is like 50 or 60% of bankruptcies are related to medical bills, right? All this stuff here. I mean, if you have a Facebook account, then you know which of your friends are in trouble and are on GoFundMe. Like this is all of us. A metaphor that I've started using is like, it's like we're walking across a battlefield, um, and there's bullets flying everywhere. And some of us have better armor than others. Some of us like have the kind of jobs where kind of, we have really good insurance. We're, we don't have to worry about it. And we have good health. Um, but there's actually more bullets everywhere. And we are – the danger is increasing. We're losing people that we care about. Um, it's a, it, I mean, it's a giant systemic crisis. What sparked the idea for this podcast for you? Well um, – Two things, two things. And one was my experience as a reporter. Uh, I would interview people sometimes who had these stories. And they were, I mean, they were powerful in my experience. Um, they were intimate because they're stories about people's life, death, the body, vulnerability, the family, because anybody who gets seriously sick has people who care about them. Um, they're about, you know, often the end of life or the beginning of life. Big turning points. And it was really clear from talking to people, every instance that I came across, that every single time you would talk to somebody who had this kind of story, they were running up against the biggest systems, like, you know, not just the specific institution that was like a hospital or whatever that they were up against, but like, it just raised all the questions, like, why was, like, how did this happen? And to answer those questions, I mean, we have presidential elections around questions like this, right? These are questions that our whole healthcare is a sixth of our whole economy, giant corporations. So I'd, I'd been pitching actually different places. I worked as a reporter like, this is a thing. This is a thing. I'd like to do this. And I was generally told like, that's a cool idea. Everybody who works there has a cool idea. We'll let you know if we want to do yours. So I kind of had it in the back of my mind for a long time. And, um, and then the thing that happened was actually I left a job that had health insurance and um, – I live in Chicago, and I'm committed to staying here for family reasons. And my wife has a business of her own that, uh, you know, so it'd be kind of my job to be the person who had health insurance. And I was like, I'm not sure that my future as, a, as an audio reporter is going to involve a job with health insurance. That's not maybe the next thing. I might need a new career. And I was like, that really sucks. I love, I, love, I love doing this. And, you know, and our family has our own little basket of pre-existing. We can, we're not going to go naked. We're not going to, you know, all that kind of stuff. I was like, well, that sucks. Uh, so I was for a while, I was like, I think I'm going to need a new career. And I, you know, I kind of set myself a deadline. And I gave myself a little while to get used to the idea. And I was like, okay, you know, January 1st, 2018, I'm going to start searching for that new career. And then in December of 2017, I was like, somebody said, like, you're really going to give it up? I was like, well, there's this one thing I really am kind of interested in. So I gave myself a week to just to talk with a few people about it, about the idea, like, what if I tried to make a show like this? What if, what if, inst- like, if I'm going to change careers, it's going to take some time. Our family's going to have to prepare for that. What if I did a little startup thing instead? Um, could it be this? I was like, I'll take a week. And, I, and in that week, it was really striking. I was like, oh, 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 interesting. Because every, I mean, there were two things um, that came out of those conversations. And one was a uh, very smart person 
was like, yeah, no one's going to tune into a show that's just a horror story every week. I was like, you're totally right about that. That would be very depressing. No one's going to choose that. Um, so it's got to be, I've got to be useful and entertaining. Um, but the other was that uh, that everybody that I talked to, and I wasn't calling my friends who had GoFundMe, you know, stuff set up. I was just talking to people. Had stories. They had like eyebrow raising stories. These were people with secure jobs. Um, you know, dad at my kid's school is like, oh, yeah, you know, my wife makes a lot less money than me, but she has good health insurance. And that was important because we moved a couple of years ago. And at the end of the day, I was kind of winded, which is unusual for me. And I went to the doctor the next day and the doctor was like, you had a heart attack. Wow. If you hadn't come in here, you'd be dead. Um, and if I hadn't had the insurance, I wouldn't have come in. Um, yeah. You know, my friend, the real estate developer was like, oh, yeah. You know, did I tell you about when I had the kidney stone last year and I can't believe I let myself go to the emergency room. Finally, it was unbearable. And let them give me a CAT scan. And it cost me $6,500. And it told me that I had a kidney stone and it was passing. And, you know, he has a super high deductible. So he paid $6,500. I was like, and I was like, you're a real estate developer. You you'd negotiate with sharks for a living. He's like, yeah, I've, I've not, I got nothing here. Wow. Yeah. So I was like, I was like, this isn't just the the giant, horrible, atrocity horror series. This is, we're all kind of living with this and it's kind of hurting us. You know, one of the things that stood out to me from what you just said is that, you know, we've, we're in this system where so often employment is connected to insurance, but even when you have employer provided insurance, that doesn't mean you're not going to walk away with some substantial bills. How many stories have you come across Oh, tons, that issue. tons. I mean, I, you know, I'm now fishing for those stories and I say on the show that I'm interested in them. And I, I, you know, so I'm hearing, I hear from hundreds of people every time I do the show, every season I've done now three seasons and every time hundreds of people write in and, and, you know, some people have kind of horse, but many of them are, yeah, like I have insurance and like, and they're not, you know, like my friend Peter who had the kidney stone, a lot of them are like, this didn't break me. You know, I'm not, but like, you know, fifteen hundred bucks is fifteen hundred bucks. Like I had plans for that. Like that's my that's my vacation. You know, that's like I planned for that all year, and that just went for this MRI that I had. So that's, I mean, that's we are increasingly again. I don't keep the numbers in my pocket, but the numbers of people who have deductibles over a thousand dollars has been growing dramatically over the last bunch of years because it's it's kind of like prices ratchet up. That means insurance companies like we're paying out more. We got to charge more premiums, or you could have a higher deductible. Well, you also have this uh, one episode from the podcast called "Can They Freaking Do That?" <laughs> That's about <laughs> surprise bills. Yeah, and and in the yeah. episode, you spoke to uh, Claire McAndrew with Families USA. It's a nonpartisan consumer health advocacy organization uh, about the practice, and here's what she said. Surprise billing is not an accident. It is a business model for private equity companies. When you go to the hospital, there are staffing companies figuring out how to make sure the hospital has the number of doctors it needs every day. There are private equity firms that have been purchasing up those staffing companies. And those private equity companies have figured out that, you know, lo and behold, a surprise out-of-network bill is bigger than an in-network bill. They are making money explicitly off of surprise billing. And if those bills are banned, their profits are going to go down. How common is this practice? It's super common. It's super common. If you go to an emergency room, emergency rooms are frequently staffed by doctors who work for these physician staffing firms. They don't work for the hospital. If you have surgery or have a kid, anesthesiologists and radiologists are typically not in network. Um, God forbid you're in some wreck out in the middle of nowhere. Air ambulances 
are generally out of network. Many of them are now owned by private equity companies. And the thing about surprise bills, a surprise bill is when you go someplace, maybe it's in your insurance, like the hospital where you go to the ER, and you get this bill, surprise, from somebody who's not in your network. They're charging you whatever they want to charge you. This is a perfect example of like, you've got great insurance, but it didn't happen to do anything for you here. Well, you also uh, did an episode that that looked at ways that the price of healthcare has actually increased. And you talked to a woman named Sarah. Her son got stitches. She got a bill for $3,000 from the ER. She tried to negotiate. Here's Sarah. I was like, well, what if I just want to pay you cash? Like, if I just pay it all today, what can we do? She's like, well, if you didn't have insurance, we could probably bring it down 90%. And I was like, cool, fine, I'll take that. And she's like, oh, no, you can't because it's already gone through your insurance company. So that's not an option for you. That's bananas. <laughs> it is. You're shaking your head. You're like, I can't believe that. So if she didn't have insurance, <laughs> she left the ER with a significantly lower bill. How does that make sense? <laughs> no, it doesn't, right? That's, the, that's, the, that's why the show's so entertaining. Um, right. So the deal is, you know, for a long time, um, Insurance companies and providers worked at the prices, and we didn't have these high deductibles. We didn't have crazy, all this crazy stuff. We weren't exposed to it so much. So prices just went up, and the hospital could say to the insurance company, frequently did, like, look, your, your customers, the people who have your policies, are going to want to be able to come here. So this is what we charge. And the insurance company would be like, okay, I guess we'll just turn around and make the premium higher. So prices got super high, and hospitals, I talk to health policy nerds all the time who say to me, nobody pays those prices. The sticker price, and nobody pays that. And I'm like, you should see my inbox. People get exposed to those prices or versions of them all the time. And, you know, again, it, maybe it's a, maybe, it, you know, if 1% of Americans get exposed to those prices, that's 3 million people. You know, that's a lot of people, but like in any given moment. But like, so what happened here is hospitals, one thing, what we're hearing, what you hear in that clip is a kind of a chain reaction. So hospitals are like, oh man, we charge these prices. They're insane. If someone doesn't have insurance, we can't charge them that much. We would just take – if it's $6,000, we would just take 600 just to have something in our pocket because otherwise we're going to be chasing them for $6,000. They're never going to pay. Um, so that's, that's, that's that side of the deal. On the insurance, they're like, we could get $3,000 from insurance. And because they have a contract with the insurance, it says if we treat someone on your plan, we get $3,000. That's what the contract says. So once it's been filed with insurance, now the hospital's like, look, the contract says we get 3000 bucks. It doesn't say who pays it. In this case, you have a high deductible, you're paying it. Pay up. We've just got a couple of minutes here, but you said that the podcast is an all gloom and doom. It's, <laughs> but, you, you might, you might want to have kind of a dark sense of humor. But as, as the conversations continue around health care in this country, it's part of the presidential election. Are you finding anything that gives you hope oh yeah oh yeah absolutely absolutely i mean this season is all about what i'm calling self-defense because the cavalry's even if no matter how the election turns out next year no matter what gets into it's going to be years before anything really happens so i have to kind of look at like what what can we do now tons i mean there's uh the episodes coming out this week it's about a reporter in memphis who exposed that the biggest hospital in town was suing thousands of its own patients, including its own badly paid employees. And she slammed them so good that a couple months later, they're like, you know, we're dropping all those lawsuits and we're raising the minimum wage that we pay to our employees. 
So yeah, I, 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 I get, I mean, I'm intentionally seeking out and I'm finding lots of things to be hopeful about. Where can people listen to the podcast? You can go to armandalegshow.com. That's our website, armandalegshow.com. Or wherever you get podcasts, we are an arm and a leg. That's it for today's Reset. You can stay connected to the show on Facebook and Twitter. We're at WBEZ Reset, and I'm at Jay White Pub Radio. You can also leave us a suggestion for a segment for the show at 888-915-9945. That's 888-915-9945. But that's all for today. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again tomorrow.